Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. Today we talk about Abu Hamid Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Ghazali. We're just going to call him al-Ghazali or or maybe Muhammad al-Ghazali. And he was born in 448 AH or in our common era 1058. He was born in the Khorasan province of Persia. So we're talking about a a Muslim alchemist. Tonight. This is interesting because in the Muslim world, alchemy was a much more kind of above board and, and accepted part of the philosophies or science. Al Ghazali, in particular, is interesting because he lived during kind of the, the Islamic Golden Age. Now, this compared to Europe, this is the 11th century, so this is you know kind of medieval days in Europe, and um, I'm not going to say dark ages because there was there was definitely learning and, and these things going on, but in a very different manner. You know, this is the time when Arabs made huge strides forward and and really had a lot of studied a lot of different kind of wisdoms and went in a lot of different directions. And Europe less so. Europe less so, I would say, because what we call the dark ages is kind of a mis a misterm used yeah. because. Uh, there still was areas of enlightenment and knowledge transfer, especially within the church of uh, monasteries and monks um, writing down information by hand, by candlelight. So there still was some knowledge, but it was very select. And uh, when we talk about the Dark Ages, we, we kind of really put the dark part of that in there because um, this whole concept of, of knowledge that was lost by the Roman Empire when it fell into disintegration – um, there was a lot of lo- knowledge lost there, especially with yeah. Western Europe, but not so much in the Middle East. They they decided to put a lot of focus on this, and it wasn't just for a selected group of people, even though we're talking about uh, a selected group of people today on the show, but the knowledge was, was freely given. Yeah, and in fact, some of this did trickle through back to Europe, and we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about that. Um, Al-Ghazali was Huyat al-Islam, meaning the proof of Islam. And this was given to no other scholar or personality in the Islamic history. And this kind of, you know, just to give you an idea of, of his status within the religion, he's also sometimes called or known as the man who saved Islam, and often referred to as the single most important Muslim after Muhammad. Now, right? That's saying a lot, so, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. go ahead. Tell us more about him. Well, you know, after studying around in Persia, which was a, a, a focal point of, of uh, free information at the he time. He was Persian, technically. And, and, and yeah. this is, that, that's an important declaration right there, uh, it's to, even in today's world. If you, go, if you go to that area of Syria and a few other places, they say that they're Persian, they're not Arab. So right. it, oh, it's yeah. still this, those divides are still there today. One of the, one of the places after studying was uh, around Persia. He he gained a reputation as a very learned and wise man, and he made it into something called the Nezimeyas, which was the first organized center of higher learning in Iran. 
which yeah. uh, I, I think of them as universities, which is probably incorrect, but some definitely some you know think of a big library and people studying and yeah, I, I think more you know, for I don't self know knowledge. The, I, I don't yeah. know if it was for for any other any other means, but that might be something that we that someone else might be a little bit more knowledgeable about than than we are tonight. Mm-hmm. But never, nevertheless, it was renowned throughout Europe. The most famous was in Baghdad, where he actually ended up. When we, we put this in context, we have to look at Baghdad as as something that's not quite what we may know of Baghdad today in the 21st century, but the Baghdad of this era was a, a very golden era, uh, full of scholars. You could walk down the streets in Baghdad and be around some of the most learned men in all of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they literally, like yeah, in all the world, like rubbing elbows. Yeah, this yeah. Is, this was the center of of, of a lot of um, academia and and knowledge. And why, what we mean by Islam's golden age is this this time of science and humanities really taking a, a boom. Medicine, mathematics, astronomy, chemistry, mm-hmm. literature, so many of these type of studies and areas of, of understanding were really abound at this time. Under the Abbasid rule, Baghdad became a city of museums and hospitals, libraries and mosques. It really was a boom time for this area. Uh, most of the famous Muslim scholars from the 9th and, thir- and through the 13th centuries had their educational roots in Baghdad. One of the most famous centers of learning was Bayat al-Hikmah, which is the House of Wisdom. And that's something we really want to focus on here tonight, which attracted attracted many scholars from all around the world. Uh, you can think of it as a think tank. Sure. And yeah. it, was, it was a mixture not of just like-minded people, but a mixed bag of folks uh, coming from different cultures and backgrounds and educational uh, um, histories. So this House of Wisdom, teachers and students worked together to do several things. One translate Greek manuscripts, preserving them for all time. We can think a lot of things that we're still that we can get our hands on today to, to, to this house of wisdom. Um, they yep. also study the works of Aristotle, Plato, Hippocrates, Euclid, and uh, Pythagoras. The house of wisdom was home to, among others, the most famous math- mathematician of the time. And let's see if I can get this name right. Uh, Al-Kawazemi, uh, the father of algebra, uh, where the name comes from, the book uh, uh, Kitlib Al-Jabbar. So I, I think for the most part, if you were to say, I would love to go back in time to really pick the brains of some of the most amazing men together at one place, it probably would be Baghdad, which at the time was the world's richest and most intellectual city of the time, especially compared to much of Europe that was in the second uh, was only second in size to Constantinople mm-hmm. of the Byzantine Empire. So big, big city, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So this was you know before the Mongol invasion. Definitely, like kind of the, the the center of the world as far as like wisdom and studies, and, and in fact, a lot of these the Greek things you mentioned, some of those texts would have been lost if they weren't translated to Arabic at some point. Like we wouldn't even know about them. You, you know, when, when you look at the history books and 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 you're you're taught these these amazing epochs of history that that were had these peaks. Uh, there's some places that I would love to be. One would be maybe the the Library of Alexandria, mm-hmm. you know, before Caesar burned it down. <laughs> you know, so I, I would love to see what was there, and you know, it's, it pains me to think that what's lost. But even more recently, during the Iraq War, in the first oh, few yeah. days, do you yeah. do you remember the first few days? Yeah. Um, so uh, the states come in and um, they make a race to Baghdad, and the plan was to kind of secure the locations for safety. But what they didn't secure was the museums. Yeah. And so they all got looted. That was a tragedy. Uh, and, and when I heard that, I mean, of course, loss of life is paramount. I mean, that's what you're kind of worried about mm-hmm. in, a, in a war action. But the second thing to me was... 
the loss of some of those things that might make it to the black market, this is, but this, stuff that might be lost to history. Yeah, this, is the, this is the cradle of civilization, right? So right. This is, that's a shame. So yeah. It is a shame. But I, I think this, going back to what I was saying, I think that this would be one of those places and times that I would love to go back and experience. One of the people you might meet there is uh, was Al Ghazali, right? So he was studying in Baghdad. And at this point, you know, you mentioned he had quite a reputation, and he—I mean, he did. He was—he was known far and wide. He even had a reputation in Europe. I mean, that's—that's that's how well known he was. But in any case, in in 1095, he had a, a spiritual crisis. So he left Baghdad. He kind of said that he was going on a pilgrimage to Mecca, um, which was a good excuse to leave. But uh, in, in in truth, he just kind of he abandoned his career, and he just—he didn't want to do that anymore. He wanted a, a change of pace. So he made arrangements for his family and disposed of his wealth, which is interesting, and, and just adopted an, a really ascetic lifestyle, kind of drifted around. He went to Damascus, Jerusalem. Um, eventually, he did, he did, in fact, visit Medina and Mecca in 1096, so you know, basically the next year. And he returned to Tus in um, uh, Persia, which was his birth town, and he spent the next several years there. So eventually, he, you know, this here's this great wise man, basically just living an ascetic life. So um, he did get some pressure to return to a Nizamiya in uh, Nishapur 10 years later. So after 10 years of kind of living this solitary lifestyle. But at this point, he knew that some of his teachings were a little unorthodox. And, and we'll talk about, you know, his philosophy and things later. But um, he knew that returning to this kind of professorship style life would get him into trouble. He went back to Tus, and then he declined an invitation to Baghdad in 1110, and he died the next year. Now, to talk about some of of the things he did, kind of, he had an opinion on many, many things, and he was certainly a scholar. One thing that's important is Islam, kind of, as a religion or as a a philosophy, took a turn uh, at this point, because he actually refuted Neoplatonism so thoroughly that it never actually recovered in the Muslim world. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna clarify that statement a little bit because it's it's obviously thought that um, he read Aristotle, argued against it, and re- and refuted it. But that's that's a simplistic way to look at it. So actually, what he did was he argued and analyzed Aristotle so well that I wouldn't say he refuted it outright, but he was able. Um, some parts he just said, you know, this goes against Islam, and we need to. Uh, abandoned it, and other parts, he modified Aristotle and, and you know kind of Platonic thinking, and was actually able to move on, like to build upon it, you know, within within the Muslim faith. Well, you know, I think that it also might add to the reasons that Greece and anything that came from Greece uh, was considered Western in in, the, in their mindset, and I think mm-hmm. that it probably didn't jive well with with anything that they were they were trying to to center their yeah. society around. Uh, I mean, that goes well, back a long but way. But that was him. Because because yeah. before this, they um, a lot of this Aristotle, same as in the West, you would think that, you know, Aristotle was a pagan. He was, you know, pre-Catholic. But the Catholics really embraced him, you know, 100%, you know, more or less. And uh, Islam was the same way until him. Another point I think I want to make, though, is that history runs deep in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Even today, people will tell you things that happen, you know, as if they happened yesterday, that happened several hundred years ago, if not longer, as as a, na- a source of national pride, and you, they they never really forgot the, the battles uh, of the Peloponnese. You know when you had Xerxes right, yeah. uh, and and uh, the uh, Peloponnese states and and all the things that went on with that. They never really forgave Alexander the Great. <laughs> all right, he was considered to this day. Uh, to this day, yeah. he was considered <laughs> a conquering genius in the West. 
but that's not how it how it felt. But in the East, it's different. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Exactly. So I, I think that I, I I'm, I'm taking a, a little bit of a leap here without this kind of knowledge set, but I, I would like to say that that might have colored some of his his anti-Plato thinkings that nothing good really should come from <laughs> or be attributed to true knowledge from 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 the Greek area. So. You know, because they, they translated the, a lot of the Greek stuff that we have today. If it wasn't for these Muslims translating it, we wouldn't even know about some of the some of the stuff. So it's it's um it is interesting. Like they did they they took it seriously. Like they studied it, translated it, you know, and and then the philosophers gave it weight and said, okay, well this is true, this is not true, or, or and in Al Ghazali's case, will said, you know, this is this kind of goes against our faith, or this is this is okay, we can build on it, you know. So it's, it's, it sounds it's, really it's interesting. very similar to the Catholic Church at the time, though, too. I mean, picking, cherry-picking yeah. uh, things yeah. here and there to say what would fit into uh, their belief system, especially when it comes to science. Yeah, one of his, one of his main works is, is called The Incoherence, which is the short form of the title, but it really analyzed Aristotle and Plato. The book took aim at the Falasifa, which is, is kind of a, an Islamic group of philosophers from the 8th through 11th centuries, through, so, you know, through this time. And one really notable person is Avicenna, who had an influence on Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas. And we did an episode on Albertus Magnus, and Albertus Magnus reviewed every part of Aristotelian writing, okay? And a lot of this he got from Arabic, so not straight from Greek, but, you know, so... Okay, I see the connection. And, um, yeah, and... It was interesting. Is like Thomas Aquinas. Al Ghazali was actually an influence of Thomas Aquinas's. So we're we're talking right about that time. They were you know they were almost contemporaries. Of course, they never met each other. You know, a thousand miles apart. But Thomas Aquinas. So Al Ghazali did influence Thomas Aquinas. But Thomas Aquinas took a much more pro-Aristotle viewpoint. Okay, so they they're looking at the same text and partially seeing different things. So it is it is very interesting how they you know look at the same source material and go in different directions. So Avicenna was one of these falasifa that he was arguing against because they were too, too pro Aristotle or Plato. Uh, Al Farabi was another one of these. So he labeled part of their part of these Aristotelian Socrates and, and Greek writers as kind of uh, corruptors of the Islamic faith. On the contrary, al-Ghazali argued that everything is directly caused by God. And this this brings us to one of his main things he argued for or, or uh, promoted, which was Sufism. And Sufism, uh, to give it our folks, our listeners, uh, an idea about what that is, is defined by the uh, its adherence as the inner mystical dimension of Islam. Mm-hmm. So kind of like the inside game, if you will, of, of uh, thought of, of Islam and its inner workings. Sufis consider themselves as the original true proponents of this pure original form of Islam. So I, I don't know if I want to really connect them to maybe the Gnostic kind of ideas of the Christian faith, uh, a feeling that they were the true bearers of the seed of, of God's wisdom, but we're, we're getting pretty close to that. It's very, very pure. Um, they were very strong adherents of the principle of tolerance, peace, and against any forms of violence. So if you can imagine, yeah. this was a rough time for maybe this group because at this time, the, the, the move of Islam was spread not all the, all the time by peace. It was also spread by, by uh, the tip of a sword through pushing in through Europe and other areas as well. So I don't know if this was really kind of a, something that they, flew, they flowed with, but the Sufis were considered a very peaceful branch of Islam yeah. at the time. I think that, that um, it goes to show how important Al-Ghazali was because 
uh, Sufis is, is a listeners, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's a, it's a subset of, of Sunnis. And Sunnis had a much weaker position uh, within the uh, Muslim world before Al-Ghazali. So just the fact that he argued for for Sunnis, and you know, this Sufis as uh, was one of these Sufis as you mentioned. Uh, after his time, Sunnis had a much greater influence in, in the Muslim world, and still do today. So yeah, he he really kind of set Islam on a new course, especially this this philosophical thinking. One thing that's very important that he did was he split the scientific study, right? So before, everything was just considered philosophy, even, you know, any kind of science, if you're talking about medicine, astronomy, or whatever. And a lot of people saw this as you're either Muslim or you are are a philosopher. So if you believe in some parts of philosophy that you can just prove, you just, I mean, you know, an eclipse happens and you can explain why that happens mathematically or optically or whatever, that's obviously true. But then they thought, well, if you believe in some parts of this philosophy, if you're a philosopher, then you believe in all of it. So you also believe in in jinn and and weird uh, mystical occult beliefs. So one thing that he did was he split it. So he, he, he said not everything is, not all philosophy is philosophy, just like not all science is science. You know, there's, so he wrote on theology, Sufism, as you mentioned, uh, even justice, like jurisprudence and, and law and some things. And uh, so he, you know, he split, you know, he said like, you know, medicine is one thing. Philosophy, okay, that's, you know, that might be something else. Astronomy is another thing. It's not the same thing. They're not necessarily related. So they don't have these mystical things in common. Do you, Travis, do you think that if you were to actually sit down with Al-Ghazali, that you could have uh, a conversation that wouldn't be too much over your head. Well, my, he Persian, actually... my Persian really yeah. sucks. Let me. Let... Yeah, you know, I, I think if you took away the the, the language oh, barrier, okay. let's just let's just say that if we're if we're time traveling at this point, I think we could take away the language barrier. <laughs> all right, but if you were to sit down and and just talk with him, uh, do you think he would be, give you a sense of from, from a common man's knowledge, or do you think it would be more of a uh, you know, very ethereal, just maybe a little bit too over someone's head because you didn't um, have the same knowledge base. Yeah, that might be a hard question think, to ask think, to answer. Actually. I think with with any of these people that I've that I've read about and studied, um, we have a, we come from very different places. So like our assumptions of of what's fact and what's not fact is very different. So I think that that he was a very rational you know being. I mean he could he could read something and analyze it like in a very intelligent way but his assumptions about what's real and what's not real might be very different it, it sounds to so, me he might be a little bit measured as well in the sense that he he was caught like a lot of our other um focal points in science when we like, talk about alchemy was he a one, wise man yeah, yes well, absolutely well, i i think would, I, would one, I be able to learn from him yes but uh, I might kind of take, you know, I might kind of wink, wink, and nod, nod at a couple of things. He well, said. maybe he would have kept one foot in in, in the Islamic faith and been right. stubborn, yeah. saying, "Hey, I'm not going to to go against that," which is in a lot of ways very admirable, mm-hmm. but it, but also somewhat cur- curtailing his 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 other part of his belief system with the other foot in the in the in the area of science of proof and measurement. And uh, as we know, faith sometimes is not yeah. proof and measurement. It's just a feeling. Yeah, some, some, of the, some of the things that I read was even though while he differed from, from his predecessors in trying to be even more kind of scientific and fact-based and, you know, to the point of pushing Aristotle aside, which Aristotle was like, you know, the fact-based person at the time. But um, some of the things I've read is still very, let's say, theological 
which is, you know, it's neither here nor there. There's still theologians alive today, but uh, again, coming from a very different viewpoint from where I am. Now, he, he did a lot of interesting things and had a lot of interesting ideas. For the sake of this podcast, what I want to talk about is, is a very famous book he wrote, which is... That would be Kimiayi Sa Adat, which is translated uh, from Persian into English as The Alchemy of Happiness. Now, when we talk about alchemy, one thing that we all kind of think about, at least uh, in Western mind thought and alchemy in history, is metallurgy. Mm-hmm. You know, ch- changing something into something precious, uh, gold, from, from something that's not precious. I want you to take that thought out of your head except for the word precious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? So it has nothing to do with metallurgy as, as we, we would know it later in the Middle Ages in, in Europe. But this thought had to do with this, this book mentions the ways to worship in Islam and at the end receiving happiness, which includes the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book is a great example of alchemy in the sense that it's talking about transmutation of the soul in preparation for life eternal. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about this type of alchemy, it's spiritual alchemy. Yep. Uh, Kamiya, which is another word for alchemy, is where it comes from, yep. uh, is a- applied in a mystical science and has is, is been studied for many, many centuries. Uh, in essence, Kamiya really represents the complete conception of the universe. And if you can wrap this around your head, the relations between earthly beings and the cosmos. Mm-hmm. So uh, it is a really kind of a... It's kind of this as as above, so below thing again. Like yeah, I, I, I yeah. think so. Uh, something, is this, if this sounds familiar, it is. But it's ju- it's just... And a different place and a different time, uh, it, with with a different sort of mentality. The, the religious philosophers of this era and this location emphasize the importance uh, of religion in this dis- discipline. So you cannot separate this type of, of of study from religion. It has to be part and parcel right. of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Once you make that that connection, I think you're really going to have a great a great hold on 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 this era. Uh, and especially with uh, Ghazali and what he was dealing with, because this is really important to understand this. This is the noblest of all occult sciences, more so than astrology, more so than the magic, more so than, than the things that we think of occult in Middle Age in the Middle Ages. Which is different than Europe, I would say. Like I, Europe, this was kind of this was next to charlatanism, or you know, you know, yeah, not not always, but not, not always, but, but, uh, but there, there were there way. were some some yeah. guys that would consider this, you know, uh, a shell game. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe in Europe. Uh, so this this was very very serious. And Ghazali himself believed that everything on Earth is a manifestation of God's spirit. Thus, everything belongs to Kamiya. So everything belongs to alchemy in mm-hmm. this sense. Yeah. Right. So there you go. Please don't get it confused. Uh, when we talk about alchemy, it's a little bit of a different spin here. To kind of to kind of give you one of the quotes from the books that I think kind of embodies this this whole book very well is so so from uh, the Alchemy of Happiness. God has sent on earth 124,000 prophets to teach men the prescription of this alchemy and how to purify their hearts from baser qualities in the crucible of abstinence. This alchemy may be briefly described as turning away from the world and its constituents are four, knowledge of self, knowledge of God, knowledge of this world as it really is, knowledge of the next world as it really is. So think if you can say that whole paragraph is a definition of alchemy as far as he understood it. So again, like you said, transmutating your soul 
for the afterlife, like purifying your soul. I mean, we definitely know the concept from other kind of uh, religious-sounding things. But uh, so this was in in the Muslim world. This kind of purification of your soul is one and the same with alchemy. Really. Now he had I, I mentioned a, or hinted a few times that he had a huge influence in Europe. So the the place where he studied in Baghdad was actually no known throughout Europe, like you mentioned. And he had an influence on Thomas Aquinas. Um, I mentioned that they went in very different directions in in some ways, especially regarding Aristotle. And again, uh, when Albertus Magnus commented on a lot of this Aristotelian stuff, then a lot of these things would have came from Arabic. So, I mean, it's, you know, he had a huge influence here. So Thomas Aquinas obviously incorporated Aristotle much more than than Al-Ghazali did. But uh, in any case, we'll leave you with one more quote from Al-Ghazali. It's one of my favorite quotes from him, uh, which is actually... Knowledge exists potentially in the human soul, like the seed in the soil. So it, it's, it is very universal. It's, mm-hmm. it's not something for the elite. It's, it's, it's potentially something that can grow in any one of us, uh, that knowledge base. And I think that uh, how, how it grows and how much it grows is, is actually up to that person. Mm-hmm. It's, kind of, it's kind of a neat thought, kind of like that. Yeah, well, uh, if, if you want to read a little bit more about Al-Ghazali, uh, feel free to check out my website at historyofalchemy.com, and there'll be him and many other alchemists and, and other alch- alchemical type of things there. Is that actually um, the word? Um, alchemical? It is now. It is now. <laughs> uh, it's chemicals from Al. Nice. Um, and by all means, uh, email us with if you have any feedback, uh, kind of pronunciation corrections or just cor- corrections about. I, you might get a lot of emails on from this tonight show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going a little bit out of my expertise talking about a uh, an Arabic or, or Persian alchemist, but this was definitely fun to research. I, I definitely learned a lot. But in any case, yeah, uh, send us your thoughts at uh, podcast at historyofalchemy.com, and find us on under Facebook, under History of Alchemy Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And also you can take a, take a listen to our sister podcast, uh, Bohemican Podcast at bohemican.com. I'd love to have you come by and take a look at everything that uh, I'm doing here in Bohemia and the wonderful things that uh, I learn about every day in, as an expat living in the Czech Republic. So uh, please come by and take a look at that at bohemican.com. We'll be back every two weeks. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Yeah, thanks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 